I started uh, scuba diving and got my uh, certification when I was 50 years old. Uh, normally, if you get certified to scuba dive, uh, you go through these courses and it lasts several weeks, if not months. And I, I think that's the way to do it because you really kind of get used to the equipment and everything. But I got certified in really less than one week. And it was a, a scary experience. I went with some friends to Cozumel, Mexico and, and, um, and learned these things. And the next thing you know, I mean, the first day we were there in the morning, we were in the, uh, the pool to start with which was easy enough and we put on the equipment, but by that afternoon we were actually in the, in the ocean waters and, and we started at 20 feet and then we were at 40 and 60, 80, 100. We went down as deep as 120 feet, which we weren't supposed to go that deep, but uh, on this particular dive there was a sponge that was releasing its spores, I guess, and it was really kind of rare, and so we all went down there when we really shouldn't have. But it was really kind of a wonderful dive, except one thing about the dive. We, uh, we got kind of caught in an underwater uh, river or something. I mean, we, we were carried along. All of a sudden, we found ourselves in a current. It's kind of hard to imagine this. I mean, you know how wind kind of blows and blows real hard. It's hard to imagine water doing that, but it does. And we felt ourselves being pulled along very rapidly in, in this, this current, and we couldn't really hardly escape it. And the dive master, I could tell he was concerned. He was trying to keep everyone together, but it was kind of a, kind of a crazy experience, and this happened for a long time, most of the dive. But we all did fine. When the dive was done, we all popped up one by one, in the moment my head came out of the water, I knew something was really wrong. Uh, there's no boat waiting for us. There are no boats anywhere. Even more disconcerting to me was that there was no land anywhere. I mean, all the other dives, you know, you're, you're diving where you can see land. There was no land anywhere. It felt like we were just bobbing in the middle of the ocean. And the waves were big, and the different divers were floating away, being carried away, really. And um, I had very little air in my tank, so if we were going to be there for a while and I needed to use it, I was going to be in trouble. But, but there we were, and, and the dive master said, well, everybody, you know, tried to signal everyone to get in a big circle, and that's what we did. And so we all got in this big circle, and then we just stayed there, waiting for the sharks. Oh, I guess that's only in movies. We waited there, though, and, and, and waited. And it's like, nobody's coming for us. Nobody's coming for us. Now, today, we're going to wrap up this series called Stuck or Trapped. Sometimes we find ourselves trapped in circumstances of life itself. I mean, we can be trapped in anger and anxiety and sin and some of the things we've talked about but sometimes our very lives feel like we are trapped and there's, we're in a circumstance that we can't do anything about. You can do nothing about it. And so the question is, what do you do when you're in that situation? Now, in our case, we were very thankful that a, a fishing boat returning home for the evening happened to go by just close enough to see this these things in the water, and he brought his boat over, and then they radioed for our boat. We found out that we had been carried a mile off from where we were supposed to be. Nobody again knew we were there. Our dive master said that's never happened to him in like 20 years of doing this. But we were rescued, and it was very encouraging. 
But we face many times in life situations that we just don't like and we're trapped and, and you wonder, well, what do you do if you can't do anything about it? For some of you, maybe you feel like your job is that, you know, you're trapped in some dead-end career, you, you, you don't have the training you need to advance, but you just feel like at a certain point, I'm kind of stuck in this. Some of you maybe feel like you're stuck in a bad home situation. You think, I, I just can't, I, I can't get out of this situation. Some of you maybe are saddled with health problems that aren't going to get better. And you have to decide, what do I do in a situation like that? When I'm caught up in a situation like that, maybe it's debt, and you see, I can, I can see no way out. I'm stuck in this situation. I can see absolutely no way out. And, and as Josh mentioned earlier, maybe some of you are trapped in the reputation you have. Other people won't let you forget what you've done wrong. And you realize, I'm kind of stuck in this situation. What do we do in a situation like that? Well, today I want to look at a familiar story that many of you know. I think it's the story of Joseph. He perfectly illustrates what we're talking about here today because he was a guy who found himself on a couple occasions stuck for years in a bad situation, but somehow in the midst of the situation, he didn't, he didn't throw in the towel. I don't see him giving in to despair. In fact, he, I don't even see him complaining. I, I, I see him actually kind of thriving in the midst of a bad situation. And there are some lessons that we can learn from his example. Now, I need to set the context of the story for some of you that aren't familiar with it. And I will mention up front, it's kind of a long story. It takes several chapters in the book of Genesis. But the story begins with this young man, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age. The year was about 1900 B.C. So this happened almost 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Joseph's birth was a little bit unusual, and it relates to the story. His mom's name was Rachel. His dad was Israel or Jacob, it's the one after whom the nation is, is named. And so he, he was the son of Israel, but he was the 11th born son in his household. Now, what was interesting about that part of the story is, is this, that as strange as it might sound, uh, Israel had four wives. He only loved one of them, though. He had four, he only loved the one. He got the others under unusual circumstances. You could read the story for yourself in Genesis, but in either case, the one wife he loved, Rachel, was incapable of having children. His other wives, Israel's other wives, began having children. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten children, and, and, and Rachel couldn't have any, any children, and then God blessed her with a pregnancy, and it ended up being Joseph. And so he was the 11th born son that was born, but what happened because of that is that he became daddy's favorite. He became the preferred son. This is the, this is the, the son of my, my wife that I love. And so suddenly, it created a context where his brothers could be very, very jealous of him. Now, in Genesis, we read three things happened when Joseph was 17 years old. The first thing is that he gave a bad report concerning his brothers. He caught them doing something they shouldn't have been doing, and he basically tattled on them. And his brothers obviously did not like that. It certainly would not have endeared him to his brothers. Second thing that happened is his, brother, or his dad made him a, a special coat, beautiful coat, Dad didn't make one for anyone else, just for him. 
And there might be more to that story than you catch if you're reading it in Genesis because the, it's likely that, that that garment was a picture of the fact that dad had chosen Joseph to be his firstborn son. To be the firstborn son in a household was a position of honor. Oftentimes it meant getting twice the inheritance. It meant you carried on your father's name. And all of a sudden this 11th boy that's born ends up being the firstborn son. And I think that added to the problem. I think that's what that coat meant. But third, Joseph had two dreams. Now having the dreams wouldn't have been a problem but they seemed to be prophetic dreams, and, and he told everyone about it, and, and nobody liked his dreams. Even his dad didn't like it, because his dreams indicated that one day, dad, mom, and the boys were all going to be bowing before him. His dad said, is, is this for real? Like, you think that we're all going to bow down to you? And his brothers despised him for it. All of this set up for what happens in Genesis 37 and verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. They could not even muster within them to be kind, to say anything nice, no good mornings. They hated him. I had three brothers. We didn't always get along, but we didn't hate each other. But that was the situation. And so great was their hatred and jealousy of Joseph. Then when, that, when dad sent Joseph to go see how they were doing because the boys were with their flocks a long distance away, when they saw Joseph coming, sent by dad, when they saw him coming, we read in verse 18, they saw him in the distance and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. I, I have trouble digesting that a little bit. These are the patriarchs of the faith, the 12 children of Israel. And, and they got murder in their hearts. There are people that we looked to and they had murder in their hearts. Let's kill the guy. Joseph shows up at their camp and they immediately grab him. They ripped off his, his coat, that beautiful coat, and they threw him in a well that was dry and they left him there. And then Genesis indicates an interesting detail, to me anyway. The detail is this. It says, then they sat down to eat. It's like he's in this pit. We know from the New Testament that he was begging to be released. He was in, in terror. And they sat down and had a picnic. While this was happening, some traders from the land of Midian happened to be passing by. They were on their way to Egypt. And Simeon came up with this idea, one of the other brothers, hey, let's sell them. We don't have to kill them, let's sell them. Get some money for them. So that's what they did. In verse 37 of Genesis 37, we read, or verse uh, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. He was sold to this individual who was influential, but he was sold as a slave. Understand that most likely as he was transported to Egypt, he had uh, chains around his neck and, and ankles. He was probably bleeding. He, all of this, he's trapped against his will. He's carted there and sold to this Egyptian, and he has become a slave. 
Now, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I mean, think about it for a moment. What would you do if you were caught in a situation like that from which you could do nothing? He did not have the option of running away. Don't, don't, there's no option there. I crossed the Sinai. You'll die. If we hadn't taken a bus, we would have. No, he was stuck. And yet, somehow, in the midst of this situation, he thrived. Potiphar made him the head of his entire household. Life was going good for Joseph. It, it looked like he was kind of mostly free. I mean, he was still a slave, but he was over the entire household, and so he had freedom to roam and check on things, and I think life was good for him until Potter's, Pot Potiphar's wife took a liking to him. She tried to entice him. And one day, Joseph walked into the house, and the only person there was Potiphar's wife, and she said, come lie with me. And he wasn't going to do that. He took off to run, and she grabbed his outer garment again, a different one, but the outer garment, held it in her hands, and he took off running. She had been spurned, and she was so angry. When Potiphar came home that night, she told Potiphar, your servant came in here and tried to rape me. It would have been every bit that graphic. He came in here, but I screamed, he yelled, and here's his garment. I took it from him. And suddenly, this Joseph, who the light was starting to shine, found himself in prison, Pharaoh's prison, and it was not a nice place to be. They didn't have TD, let's put it that way. No, no mattresses, dirt floor, food would have been horrible, dark, damp, horrible. Now again, I ask, you know, what would you do in that situation? I wonder what I would do in that situation. I have a friend, by the way, that was in that situation. He was passing out Bibles and sharing the gospel, and he crossed from India, I think it was into Pakistan, and he shared the gospel all over the place, and then he got arrested. They threw him into prison. For three months, he slept on a floor, a dirt floor, same clothes. It was his restroom. It was everything for three months. Not an easy thing. Joseph has to confront this. Yet, even in this context, as the story continues, he thrived. The prison guard made him in charge of all the other prisoners. And once again, he's, he's free to walk around and, and check on everyone else. He had proved himself faithful. Now, the question before us here today is what on earth happens inside of a person that would cause them to view this hopeless situation through some kind of lens of hope that allowed him not just to endure the situation, but actually to thrive in it, to live in it. My main takeaway here this morning is this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? It's Paul's takeaway from the New Testament. If God, if God is for us, if God is for you, who can be against us? But I want to make some points that kind of emphasize this in terms of Joseph's story. Because you realize that this young man was 17 when he was carted off. He was 30 when he was finally released from prison. It was 13 years, the best 13 years of a person's life, I would argue. About 17 to 30, it goes downhill a little bit from there. I'm like, I'm long gone. I'm twice that. Those of you that know the story, and I won't spend much time talking about it, but those of you that know the story know that Pharaoh, who's over all of Egypt and probably the most influential person on the planet at the time, he had two dreams, and he was looking for someone to interpret the dreams. 
And word got out that Joseph had that ability, even though he was in the prison. He had interpreted some dreams before. He had his own two dreams earlier. And then when he was in prison, he heard a couple dreams from a couple prisoners, and he properly interpreted them. And now Pharaoh had some dreams, and they said, there's a prisoner down there that can interpret dreams. So he was brought out, cleaned up, brought before Pharaoh. And if you know the story, he was elevated to the second most influential person in the, in the world, next to Pharaoh, second in command over everything. He's finally in the right place. But what sustained him before he got to that place? I want to suggest three things that relate to this. If God is for you, who can be against you? The first one is this, that God was with him in the midst of it all. God wasn't just for him, God was, was with him. Now, God does not promise that we will not have hardship in our life. He does not promise that life is going to be easy for us. And some people have bad theology about that. They think Christians should never suffer. They think bad things don't ever happen to Christians because we're Christians and God always blesses Christians. Well, he does always bless Christians, but bad things happen to Christians. It's all over the Bible. But if you want complete truth, just read Job 1 through 3. He was the most righteous man in his day, and he went through some things. Things happen to Christians. But if God is with us, I think that Joseph was aware of that, that his God was with him. And so when he became a slave, we read in Genesis 39 and verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. The Lord was with him. I don't think that was just a point of truth. I think it was what he knew in his heart. At least God, I've got God. If I've got God, if, I, if I've got God, you know. But Jesus has told us, if, if you're a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. You might think you're alone. You might think you're on your own. You might think you're facing this by yourself. Our God is with us. He will never leave us. He will never abandon us. And if we'd have the faith to see it in the midst of the circumstance, it would change. And then when he became a prisoner, we read in verse 21 of Genesis 39, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. God was not just present with him, he was fighting for him, causing him to be elevated. And I think again, he was aware of it. A second thing though that I believe that Joseph was aware of is that God was sovereign over his circumstances. In other words, he knew that God was in charge. We get a glimpse of this theology later on in the story, because if you know the story, you know that while he was in Egypt, there was a severe famine, and he had collected all this food because he knew it was coming. And Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt to buy grain. They did not realize it was Joseph at first. And then eventually Joseph um, revealed himself to his own brothers. He looked, of course, different. He was 13 years older, but he looked like an Egyptian. He even talked to them in Egyptian so they wouldn't realize who he was. But in Genesis 50, we read that dad had died. And if you know the story, you know the whole family ended up moving to Egypt and Joseph was taking care of them, but dad died. And the boys, his brothers, became afraid that he would finally seek revenge. Obviously, he wasn't going to do anything while dad was alive, but dad had passed away, and they were scared. 
So they went to see their brother Joseph sitting on his throne and they, they prostrated themselves. We're your slaves. Don't take our lives. Joseph's response is found in verses 19 and 20 of Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about this present result, the survival of many people. You planned to harm me. That was your intention, but you didn't throw God off. God had a plan all along. Now, I'm suggesting that Joseph had this in his mind. He realized that God was sovereign. God was over all. And the reason I say that is the first opportunity he has to say something, it just comes right out. You know, how did he know that? You know, for him to say, I, I, I know you guys meant it, but I'm not God. There is a God who's sovereign, and you intended this, but God intended it for what you're seeing here today. This was all part of his divine plan, and I know that, and I think that truth may have sustained him. Now, we wonder as Christians, do we have the same promise? And I think the answer is yes. One of the most famous verses in the Bible is Romans 8, 28. In the context, I think Romans 8.28 is primarily talking about the fact that if you put your trust in Christ, you are so secure and you are so loved that God has worked everything out from, from the point before you even knew God to calling you and to saving you from your sin, paying the penalty for your sin, and even glorification, all of it's sorted out by God. But I think it also includes our lives now. And there are other promises that say the same thing, but in Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. Somehow he's working it out. I'm so thankful for that. Now, sometimes you don't see it in, unless you're looking in the rearview mirror. But I've looked at my own life sometimes and I've been really surprised. I think all the turns and everything, I, 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 how did I end up here? It was not where I was headed. And I realized how God's hand was in it here and then here and here. And I'm convinced our God is working with us. He knows us as individuals and he's accomplishing things in our lives. But when things happen to you, they don't just happen to you. God is sovereign in it. He allows it to happen to accomplish some kind of good. But the third thing that I think that Joseph was aware of is that God had promised great things for him. I think he was relying on God's promises to him. Now you say, what promise? Where do we read any story about Joseph being promised? I'm convinced Joseph knew that the dreams he had earlier were from God and that they were a promise from God. In Bible times, uh, uh, dreams are something like this that God wanted to confirm. He always did them twice, not just once. It was a way of confirming the message that every, every witness be confirmed with two. And so as our story begins, he had two dreams that were different but very, very similar. The application was the same. And even his father thought it was probably from God, I think, because he got offended by it. What, am I going to bow down to you? His dad didn't say, oh, that's just a dream. And I believe it goes on to say that he, he even, Israel hid it in his heart. He thought about it. He kept it. Tucked away like, I want to see what's going to happen with this. And then when the two dreams were interpreted, when he was in prison, he interpreted dreams for two different prisoners, but they were the same dream. Same idea in both dreams. Both came true. And then Pharaoh had two dreams, not just one. 
And Joseph interpreted it, and so he knew. I think he knew. I don't know at what point he, he realized, you know, this isn't fleshing out the way my dreams said they would. But I think he may have been holding on to things, the promises he had from God. And we have amazing promises from God as well. The Bible's filled with amazing promises. If we just know what they are, we can claim them. I want to ask you here by way of application, are you in the midst of a difficult circumstance or situation? What, what situation are you in that maybe you feel trapped, like you can't get out of it? Is there something like that in your life, something that you're facing? Do you realize that God is, is in the midst of it with you, that he's there with you? I have found, by the way, that the most difficult things I've faced are the times I've met God the most intimately, I found him there. I mean, I find him in the blessing too. I mean, when I see all these beautiful leaves changing color, I, I worship God because I, I, every time I see it, I think, you know, God, you could have made it go from green to brown and dried it. I mean, just dropped, but you, it's the beauty of our God to say, let's, let's go out in a wonderful way. And they turn beautiful colors and everything. But we find our God many times in the difficult things, not just the beauty and the wonderful things. In the closest times I've been to God have been the times when I thought, oh no. And I had to face something and I found that he was with me. Second, do you realize he's sovereign over your circumstances as difficult as they may be to realize God's got something going on. And we won't always know what it is. And then third, do you realize that God has promised you great things? And specifically, do you have promises related to whatever it is you're facing? You say, well, what are some of the promises? Well, I want to give you some. I think the greatest promise of all is John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. Jesus died in our place and for our sin. He was buried, he rose again from the dead, proving that his sacrifice had been accepted by God the Father. He paid a horrible price so God could extend forgiveness to you as a free gift, but by faith we take it. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. Romans 10, 13 says a similar thing. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. Call out to Jesus. But there are other verses out there of course, we looked at Romans 8.28 today. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's where God is. 1 Corinthians 10.13, we covered a couple weeks ago, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to humanity. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with that temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, love, and discipline. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses your ability to understand it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A tremendous promise. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Be not anxious, for I am your God. I will be with you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 40.31, those who open the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They will walk 
and not tired. They will faint but not, or fall, but not faint. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach. It will be given to him. I, they're all over. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. You can count on him to do it, to forgive you your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and always acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And it goes on and on. You know, I encourage us to be ones who are reading our Bibles and the main reason I encourage that is because I think you get to know what God is like. It's revealed through what he's put there. You see how God is, how he relates. You, you see his laws and what God says is good and right and what's not. And, and, and we learn about our God, but another reason why we should be in our Bible is all the promises, they're scattered all over. And when I read them, I circle them. In my Bible, they're circled. I used to put them out on a three-by-five card and carry them with me. I'd have them with me. You're straight you're facing temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You doubt whether or not you're forgiven, 1 John 1, 9. The list goes on and on. Whatever you're facing, God's word has something to say about it. Now, I think our ability to face through lots of things has to do with our understanding of these things. Our presence of God with us, his sovereignty in our lives and the promise that he's made to us that Peter said allow us to escape the corruption that's in this world. His precious promises allow us to escape. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph. So grateful you were with him, demonstrating your faithfulness. And Lord, we thank you that you're with us as well. And we thank you we can turn to you and trust in you. And Lord, whatever we're facing, you know what it is. Whatever we're facing, we just ask you to give us the grace to apply what we've talked about here today, to see through the lens of faith. Because I think how the Israelites were not benefited by your promises because they did not attach faith to those promises. They didn't believe you. They didn't trust you. And Lord, we want to be ones who trust you. Give us the grace to be able to believe you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.